I don't know if you've listened to my podcast before, but sometimes there's a bit of explicit language, and this is one of those times. It's Thursday, January 4th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca in Virginia. An historic election ended with an historic drawing of names from two historic film canisters in what was actually quite a tasteful earthenware bowl. Kudos to the bowl. And now listen to the solemnity of the moment. The winner of House District 94 is David Yancey. That was the State Board of Elections Chairman James Alcorn with the announcement the Republican had won. It was confirmed when the Board of Elections Vice Chair, Clarabelle Wheeler, opened the other film canister. Will be quite a moment if it also said David Yancey, huh? But it didn't. And the second name for the other candidates, Shelley Simons. And then, with a serious air, the chairman made it all official-like. I therefore move that, pursuant to Virginia Code Section 24.2-674, that David Yancey is the newly elected delegate from House District 94. Of course, pursuant, forthwith, state the number of the statute. You just drew a film canister from a bowl. Why not let the candidates who could spit a peach pit the furthest? What a farce. So you have to pair the farcical, this process, with the ultra-serious to give it the veneer of logic or something that adults would sign off on. Well, Mike, Mike, what are you going to do? It's a tie. What are you going to do? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. You have two delegates for that seat. They each get half a vote. Split the salary, split the staff, split the office. You could go a Monday, Wednesday, Friday deal for one of them, a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday deal, Sunday, Lord's Day, right? Or you do the line down the middle like they did on Happy Days. You learn a lot about the other delegate. Maybe if you share the same fax machine, it will bring about an air of bipartisanship. It seems so obvious. But of course, my biggest problem is the solemnity with which a tie is treated as opposed to or contrasted with the haphazard method of electioning in general. The illogical and antiquated rules of just voting on the first Tuesday after the first Monday. Because, well, I mean, that's what they did in the 1780s when we were all farmers. Now, I want to point out, I wanted to point out, but I can't really do it. What I wanted to do is say, and there are huge consequences. If there's Democratic control, because the House of uh, Delegates there in Virginia is uh, 50-50, and so the Republican will make it uh, 51-49 instead of a 50-50 split if the Democrat had won. And because of that, think of all the policies that could pass. The uh, old governor of Virginia wanted to expand Medicaid, and uh, the state house didn't allow it. But I don't think so much really would change, not with just this one vote. I live in New York where one of our chambers was close to being uh, controlled by the Republicans by one vote, then closed by the Democrats. And it turned out when it all comes down to one vote, every representative official is out for himself or herself. So self-dealing and self-serving overruns party affiliation. That usually happens. Maybe if there were a Democratic majority by five or six votes, there would be real change. Also, my, my solution of they each get half a vote, that wouldn't change much. But I looked at a bunch of these laws, and they seem kind of moderate. Now, maybe you could say they're not these uh, huge swings that would reshape society. That's kind of the definition of conservatism, right? But all the laws looked more or less like the kind of laws that we could all say, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. I get that. They're kind of in between a red and a blue view of the world. Like, for instance, in Virginia, stronger booze will be able to be sold. Up from uh, 101 proof, you can now sell 151 proof booze. 
Where to drink the booze? Well, they passed a new law that allows you to tote around an alcoholic beverage inside a mall or what's called a commercial lifestyle center. All right, but what about the consequence of such booze? Well, I'll tell you, they address that too. Women in Virginia can obtain a year's supply of birth control instead of the former rule, which just had them parcel it out monthly or in quarterly supplies. What about the nanny state? That's something that people complain about. Well, one example of this, in the schools, they're allowing school security officers to carry a firearm in the performance of duties. Okay, so that's trending to the red. But listen to this, bullying. School boards require the principal to notify parents of any student involved in alleged incident of bullying. So you give a little, you get a little. Hey, we don't want to bully, but if you do, Officer Rodriguez over there is armed. And speaking of armed, applications for the permit of a concealed handgun requires photo identification. So that's good. I don't know if that's gun control. It just seems sensible. But also, hunters used to have to wear orange when hunting. Now they can wear, quote, blaze pink. So it's good for the gun guys and also for the gun gals. It's feminism and firearms all up in one. And finally, and I think this is the biggest contribution the Virginia state legislature has made for the people of that fair state, slow drivers. They set a fine for failing to drive on the right side of highways or failing to observe traffic lanes. If you're in the left lane and you are driving too slow, you can be ticketed for up to $100. If you refuse to pull over, the slow speed chase itself, that could be worth the price of admission, which, as I said, is $100. On the show today the shape that a Trump presidency could be in by midterm elections, and I say, could be a good shape. But first, in the spirit of purplish politics, centrism and moderation, and districts that could go either way, I interview a former congressman who's kind of the king of the centrist, the maestro of moderation, the captain of comedy and compromise. Like I said, he is a former congressman. For six years, Jason Altmaier was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, 2007 through 2013. Quite a time to be there in the uh, book jacket. So you, you could cite so many accomplishments on one's book jacket. And I think it's notable that on the jacket for his book, Dead Center, How Political Polarization Divided America and What We Could Do About It, here's one of the accomplishments he cites that he was calculated to be at the exact midpoint of the House, the dead center giving him the most centrist voting record in Congress. Yet having read the book, I could say that doesn't mean he's wishy-washy or bends with the winds. Hello, Congressman Altmaier. How are you? Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So centrism or being a centrist and being a moderate and being willing to compromise, they're not all the same thing. They might be related, though in some cases they aren't. What do you think of those three, centrism, moderation, uh, willingness to compromise? What's the most important for a functional democracy? Well, the reason I I called the book Dead Center is because what we're electing are people who are accountable to the extremes, because the great majority of people who vote, especially in closed primaries, are on the extremes. They're the political activists. If you want to win and you're running for office, you have to appeal to that group, not just in the words that you say, but in the way you vote. If you don't do that, you're going to have a problem politically especially in your primary. So people may or may not be philosophically extreme in their own heart, 
when they're elected to office. But if they want to continue, they absolutely must appeal to the extremes to be successful and win public office. Do you think getting primaried, though, is as much a concern for Democrats as Republicans? Not just anecdotally, I could point to several possibly Republican Senate seats where the Democrats now hold it because Republicans in the primary put forward an extreme candidate. And I don't think that happens as much in the Democratic Party. And one just data point I have is that rhino is a word that most Republican activists know, uh, Republican in name only. I don't hear dino used as much. Well, I heard Dino a lot uh, in in my career, and as you know, because you read the book, I I lost a primary. That that's why I'm not in office anymore. Yes. And and the issue that continued to come up when I was in office on major issues, on substantive issues, I voted about half the time with the Democrats and half the time with the Republicans, and I ran against somebody who was a traditional union-backed Western Pennsylvania Democrat and. Uh, the supporters on his side were able to point to me and say, that guy works with Republicans. You don't want to vote for him in office because he actually works with the other side. That was a negative, and and in the end, that was one of the decisive factors. Gerrymandering played a big role in it, too. But to your question, I just think the Democrats are ahead of the game on purging from the party in Congress people who are in the center. And that's why 2018 is going to be so interesting. When President Obama took office, there was enough of a cushion there, a 78-seat majority, almost inconceivable now. The Democrats had a 78-seat majority. And uh, they were able to do things by pushing the agenda to the left that that were not very favorable in districts like Stephanie Herseth, Sandlin in South Dakota and other members across the country. And there was the tidal wave in 2010 that wiped out the Blue Dog Coalition and, and people in the center. So after 2018, if the Democrats are able to retake the House, which I think they might, you're going to have to have that discussion again among the party of, of what are we going to do with these people who came in campaigning as centrists? They represent purple districts with different points of view than the National Party. And if they go down that same road where they don't support them and they push an agenda that's not popular in those districts, the same thing will happen that happened last time. They'll lose the majority very quickly. Should Democrats allow pro-life Democrats a seat at the table? I, I, I wouldn't look at – the answer is yes, but I wouldn't look at every issue based upon the hot-button social issues. Every district is different. The real question is, are you going to let members represent the districts that they were elected to represent? The philosophical difference between what a Democratic voter looks like in western Pennsylvania, in South Dakota, in Oklahoma, in Utah, areas where we had Democratic members, very different type of Democrat – than San Francisco and Maryland right. and the areas where the Democratic leadership is from. So but I, real- I, raise, I raise the abortion issue specifically because it seems like there are hot-button issues and then there's this, which is the third rail issue. That's actually a good metaphor because the third rail is even hotter than a hot-button. So <laughs> I understand your argument. It's one criteria, which is this is a representative government. We're literally called representatives, and therefore we should represent. Another criteria is the National Party either stands for certain things and they don't. And one of the things I think that most Democrats say that we stand for are things like women's reproductive rights. And yes, perhaps we could concoct a scenario where you represented a district where many of your constituents don't believe in racial justice. Then you are not a member of our party. Some Democrats would say, if you don't have this view about women's reproductive rights, then we really don't want you associating with the Democratic Party. I would argue that racial justice is certainly a very different 
issue mm-hmm. than arguing over, over pro-life or pro-choice. You know, racial justice is a core value, and certainly you, yeah. you could look at a candidate who didn't have, have those values and say, we don't want that person in our party, we're not going to support them, and that would be completely legitimate. You know, on the abortion side, again, there are some areas of the country where there's a different point of view. I came from a very Catholic-oriented district, predominantly Democratic district, but very conservative, blue-collar Democrats. And that issue was a very big issue. And it may not have been decisive in everybody's mind, but when you're a candidate running for office, they evaluate you based upon all of these criteria. And if you don't fit the mold of the type of Democrat they'll support, they'll turn and vote Republican. It's why President Trump was elected in a lot of those areas. So I just think the Democratic Party is making a mistake by putting those kind of litmus tests on in purple swing districts where maybe in a tidal wave you'll be able to survive. But over time, if you're not voting in the interests and consistent with what the constituency is that you're representing, you're going to lose. Yeah. How'd your district vote in the uh, last presidential election and then for the uh, Obama elections before that? Well, the district was dismantled, yeah, so they didn't do a calculation of the you know geographic parameters of what the district used to look like. However, the counties that I used to represent went overwhelmingly for President Trump. I would guess it would have been at least a 20-point margin for, for President Trump. In 2012, President Obama lost by 17 points. In 2008, in the district that I held and that I was running for re-election in, President Obama lost by 12 points, and I won by 11. Mm -hmm. So the district I represented were blue-collar Democrats, kind of the steel town, rust belt, Democrats you might think of when you think of Western Pennsylvania. And the other half of the district was the affluent suburbs of Pittsburgh, the wealthy communities, primarily Republican, but they were pro-business Republican. They weren't crazy far-right Republicans. So both of them trended towards the center, Mm -hmm. and both of them were winnable for either party. And again, you had to show that you were thoughtful, that you were a centrist, and that you were willing to uh, listen to both sides and hopefully work with both sides. And if if they didn't perceive you as being in that mold, they would vote Republican. But if you were a Democrat, you had the opportunity to win them if you presented them with the right choice. And again, for 2018, there's a lot of districts that are like that around the country that the Democrats are going to need to win. And I think now the DNC and and, uh, the DCCC are going to support those candidates because they want to win. It's the same thing that happened in 2006. But the real issue is going to be once they're in office, are they going to support them once they start voting against the party on key issues because those issues are not popular in those districts? I don't know who the Democratic nominee is, but if it's, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand or Cory Booker or Kamala Harris, like a non-white man, is it impossible for a younger non-white male candidate to, you know, get those blue-collar Democrats in the swing states like uh, your voters were? The Democratic primary in 2008, Secretary, well then Senator Clinton, beat Senator Obama by 30 points Mm. in my district in a Democratic primary. So I think some of that does play out when when you look at the demographics of the candidate. Um, But more importantly, it's the ability to connect with those blue-collar voters. And the perception 
and kind of the historical memory of Bill Clinton has changed since he was first running for office in the late 1980s and he won in 1992 and as a centrist. And that's kind of not the way people remember him now. But when he was running for office in 1992 and 1996 in that district, he connected perfectly coming from Arkansas and, and knew those districts and worked hard to understand the demographics and had that personal connection that Mrs. Clinton was unable to replicate when, when she ran. You know, Barack Obama tried to do it all the time by talking about my grandmother from Kansas and I'm you and I understand. And he still lost. He still lost by a lot in your district. Yeah, and the Democrats, this is the, the battle that they're having internally, the, the Civil War, not in the House, because again, the centrists are gone, but at the national level and the future of presidential politics, do the Democrats try to appeal to the voters that we're talking about, the mm-hmm. Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania voters that swung the election in 2016, or as Senator Warren and others have advocated, we just write off that constituency. That's the World War II generation, and demographically, the country's changing, and eventually, probably pretty soon, the tidal wave of Democratic voters is going to overtake that group. So they're less relevant to the future of the Democratic Party. But if you want to win in 2018, you are going to have to appeal in districts that that's the core constituency. What was your impression of Nancy Pelosi as a uh, political operator? Uh, as as good as it gets. Uh, you know, we, we had our issues politically, yeah. and she's probably not a huge fan of mine, but, you know, I, I didn't support her for speaker my last term in office. Yeah. But, and you didn't, uh, you didn't vote for Obamacare, even though she offered you to chair the session where they passed it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, I, I was not her uh, her ideal member, I'm sure, but uh, I've never seen anybody work harder. I've never seen a better leader. Uh, I do think politically she's out of step. I, I disagree uh, after the 2008 election with the way she and Chairman Waxman and Miller and others uh, approached the centrists as sort of an expendable commodity to get their lifelong dreams uh, accomplished in a short two-year period. So I don't necessarily agree with, with the approach, but I've never seen anyone work harder or, or have a more firm grasp on leadership than she had uh, during her time as Speaker. Um, do you think it would the Democrats should change from her as uh, as as their leader to, you know, Tim Ryan was the alternative. Just the difference from changing from San Francisco, that's the area she represents, to Tim Ryan in a more blue-collar area in Ohio. Maybe that would have a huge effect. Oh, a- absolutely. And obviously, if Speaker Pelosi were to step aside and that seat were to become open, you would have a lot of different types of candidates uh, that would present themselves. Tim was the one who was willing to put himself forward to run against her and credit to him for doing that. But in an open seat scenario, you'd have a lot of other candidates. But I've, I've spoken on this. I, I voted against her while I was in Congress. I've written a lot about it. I, I do think for the Democratic Party's sake, it is time to find younger leadership in the House. The, that entire team of leaders are all in their mid-70s now. They, they have a different point of view politically than a lot of these uh, middle America districts that are going to be needed to win the House. And, and when you're running for office, and you know this, and you're going to have people following you around with cameras everywhere you go saying, are you going to vote for Nancy Pelosi for speaker? She's a polarizing yeah. figure. They're going to run ads against you. They're going to do the morph uh, you know, ad w- with you turning into to her or, or, or you know, claim that you're an acolyte of her. So it, it's just not helpful for candidates. And in, in a new generation of Democrats, I, I do think it's time for a new generation of leaders. My last question is, was being a congressman fun? 
some parts are fun. Uh, you get to, and some parts are meaningful. I don't want to say fun. Uh, there are parts that are fun, but but what what I remember is being able to help people. Having somebody come up to you in the grocery store and say, "I'm having trouble with my VA benefit or my student loan or my Social Security," and you can literally change the law or call a cabinet secretary and get this person's problem resolved. By your intervention, you, you help somebody and, and make their life better. That's good stuff. I, I was able to do, which I talk about in the book, a rescue mission to Haiti because I had a couple of constituent sisters who ran an orphanage in Haiti and bring back those orphans that were American adoptees. I mean, that's something I'll remember for the rest of my life. But when you have people following you around with video cameras everywhere you go, when you have to spend those hours every day raising money, when every town hall meeting you have and every public event you have on both sides, negative people coming specifically to criticize you and and the people that you encounter on a daily basis are generally not the nicest people because they come from the political extremes. I don't miss that part at all. But being able to help people, being able to have a voice and speak on the floor and cast votes on important issues, that's the part that I'll miss. And I'll definitely miss the friendships. Um, It's a misnomer that Democrats and Republicans don't form friendships. You you do form uh, friendships on both sides. You're all there together, and you're all from different parts of the country, and you become friends. And and I still do keep in touch with my colleagues, but it's not the same as being there every day. So I'll miss that part, too. Jason Altmaier represented parts of Western Pennsylvania for the 110th through 112th Congress. His book is Dead Center, How Political Polarization Divided America and What We Can Do About It. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. I enjoyed it. And now the spiel. The stock markets are cooking. Another record day for the markets, with the Dow hitting 25,000 earlier this morning. Jim Urio, Jeff Kilberg are the traders today. Jim, let's go ahead and start with you. What do you make of these market moves? 25,000. It was just last January. We hit 20,000. Okay, well, that's Wall Street. What about Main Street? Here's that news. A jobless claims coming in at 250,000. So that's how many filed for jobless claims last week. Slightly higher than estimates, but still within the range. It all tells the story of a solid, solid jobs market. And the question mark continues to be, then where are the wages? Let me explain this a little bit to you. Unemployment right now is really low. That's happening. And what's also happening, what we're beginning to see, it's not just the people who are filing for unemployment. It's the people who said, I've given up on work. They're actually being pulled back into the workplace. That's the second part of it. And once you pull more of those people back, so you have low unemployment, higher workforce participation, that's when you can see wages rise. We're seeing it a little. You'll probably start seeing it too much. That's why people use the metaphor of slack in the labor market. It's not just one thing. You got to keep pulling and then you pull up the unemployed and then you pull up the, I didn't think I wanted to be employed. And then eventually you start pulling up the wages. So that's good. I mean, that's really good news for the economy. And good economic news should be happening. It should be the case that these are good economic times. And the tax bill that was just passed is a stimulus. Sure, Trump's lying about it and how important it is and how big it is and totally downplaying negative consequences. But right now, in the short term, it's a stimulus. Here in today's White House press briefing, President Trump appeared via video message because you can't shout a question at a video. Although reporting says Trump does that all the time at Morning Joe. But here's what Trump said today. Hundreds of thousands of Americans are seeing larger paychecks 
bigger bonuses and higher pension contributions. And it's all because of the tax cuts and the tax reform. Obviously, it's not all because of tax cuts that no one's actually received yet. Come on. But it is true the near-term effects of the tax cuts will be and are making businesses feel good about themselves. And of course, the corporate tax laws, that's going to be a big boost to business. It's going to really help corporate earnings. The midterms are trending to take place during boon times, during really flush times. And while the president's party usually loses seats, when the economy is as good as it really can be, shouldn't lose that many seats. You know, it wouldn't shock me if the uh, Roy Moore loss was the nadir of the first two years of a Trump presidency. He got the tax cuts after that, and the tax cuts are working. Then again, there are the self-inflicted wounds. And we call them self-inflicted wounds, and when we think about them as own goals, we say, well, just don't do them. He can't not do them. I do not think that he can avoid them. If he does avoid them, I think his party should retain both houses of Congress. But can he avoid them? Let's look at the international situation. No one really votes on international politics until it comes knocking at our door. But Donald Trump really increases the chances of calamity. Calamity isn't just what others think of us. The people who care about that, who've already priced that into their vote, are already voting against Trump and probably the Republicans who represent his policies. People who care that presidents of all these G7 nations are saying to themselves, well, I'll tell you what they're saying. Politico's Susan Glasser wrote about this. She's an excellent journalist, pretty much the opposite of Michael Wolff. She wrote it, it happened. So she wrote about a meeting with foreign dignitaries who uh, just met with Trump. And she writes, without fail, they just had wide eyes about the entire engagement. Trump struck them as uninformed about their issues and dangerously unpredictable, asking them to expend political capital on behalf of a U.S. that no longer seems a reliable partner. The word they all used was, this guy is insane. Now, offending sensibilities or shocking foreigners or behaving in ways that presidents aren't supposed to behave, that's not yet a calamity. The people who this is appalling to, like me, probably you, we're probably not voting for Trump or Trump acolytes in the midterms anyway. But what it does is it sets up the groundwork for a calamity that can be felt by a normal person. I don't know what it will be. That's how calamities work. They're unexpected until in retrospect, we go back and said, oh yeah, we should have expected that. How long could you be so reckless without tangible ill effects? Ill effects that everyone notices, that the regular voter notices. Now, you could argue Trump's backers argue that it's part of a policy and the policy is disruption and the policy is, say, backing uh, Israeli politics that there's a logic to subscribing to, maybe. But he also haphazardly picks and chooses what his foreign policy will be or will be for that moment. And it causes effects. It already causes effects. Take Saudi Arabia. There are some who say we should have strong relations with Saudi Arabia. There are some who say it's a really repressive regime. We should bring it to heel. There are some who say we need their oil. We need their power in the Middle East. We need them as a check of Iran. That's all true. But to be pro-Saudi Arabia, and Trump is pro-Saudi Arabia, it doesn't necessarily mean we have to be pro-Mohammed bin Salman. He's the guy who's basically taken over as a crown prince, basically taken over Saudi Arabia. He's jailed his rivals. Is this good? It seems like like Mohammed bin Salman might not be a good leader, might be a reckless leader. Here is the evidence. Saeed Hariri flew to Saudi Arabia. He's the president of Lebanon. And the Saudis jailed him. The Saudis basically tried to depose 
the president of Lebanon. That would have had terrible shockwaves throughout the region. I'm not saying those are the shockwaves that could cause an American to vote differently in a year, but I'm saying that it is a sign that Trump backs Bin Salman. Bin Salman acts in a way that is in no way in keeping with American interests, and that's a tinderbox. So why couldn't that, for instance, everyone's looking at North Korea, but why couldn't that, kidnapping the president of Lebanon, why couldn't that set off a chain of events that ultimately winds up causing a conflagration and redounds back to Trump. Another thing I would look at on the question of how long can you behave this recklessly without any effect, look at France, Germany, and the United Kingdom. Which of those is our greatest ally? It's the United Kingdom. Then Germany and probably France last. I mean, France is an ally, but there have been moments of disagreement in the foreign policies of the United States and France. There's always disagreement, but You know, France of Germany, the UK, and France is the weakest American ally. Which one does Donald Trump like best? He likes France best. He likes Macron best. And why? Because Macron gave him a parade. That's that's the United States foreign policy now. Now he's not going to piss off the French or the Germans or the or the English to such an extent that there will be a war or that Americans will get killed. I can't imagine. I mean, something like that can happen. But the fact that he chose Macron and he has the best personal relationship and he's the only leader that he hasn't said horrible things about on Twitter that tells you. What a potential calamity this guy represents in terms of foreign policy. So the other argument is, well, he could be a disruptor. And of course, we'll greet any disruptor with the reaction, well, that's very disruptive. But I ask myself, think about other people who represent disruption. I don't think Trump can do it effectively and without calamity. I don't think that a guy who lies so much and knows so little can also be so disruptive without it blowing up in the United States face. I think of Newt Gingrich. Now, Newt Gingrich lies, but at least he knows things. He knows how the system works. And then I think about Ron Paul or Bernie Sanders. It's not that they don't know how the system works. They have very different ideas of how the system works, but they're basically honest. They're guided by a sense of reality that is, in fact, grounded in reality. And Donald Trump, we have a liar, an ignorant liar at that, and an ignorant liar who is trying to cause disruption. That, to me, means chaos. Chaos, to me, means the potential for calamity. And calamity, to me, means an argument that however good our economic times are, by the time we come to vote in 2018, there could be some part of the world that's burning and Donald Trump's going to get blamed for it. And that's it for today's show. And let me plug friend of the podcast, friend of uh, myself personally, Chris Malamphy. He's doing a live show in support of his Hit Parade podcast, an excellent podcast. Hit Parade Live will be at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Special guest Ted Leo, ooh, love Ted Leo, of the pharmacist's fame, will be with Chris, supporting Chris, talking hits and parading about Thursday, January 18th, Bell House in Brooklyn. Go to Slate.com slash live to find out about that. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, who's hoping to allow some sort of kick-ass puce onto firearms in 2018. Daniel Schrader was back producing The Gist today. It's like reprising his role from an earlier season. Like Charlie on Girls. He showed up with his hair totally shaved in a totally different accent. 
I'm talking about Schrader now, not Charlie. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, has one more day away, and then we get our hooks into her good, and we will never let her go. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. See, what he does is he puts all the names of the producers into film canisters, and then he puts them in a tasteful bowl, and he pulls out Aunt Stacy's 1987 trip to the Wisconsin Dells. What the hell? The gist, we suggest this warning. We're giving you a year's supply of contraception all at once, but please feel free to space out the sex that you have. Okay, don't take it as an endorsement or a recommendation. And, and if that advice helps just one lady, I will have considered it worth it. Upuru deparu dupuru, and thanks for listening.